this morning we are in a new series on the Holy Spirit. I remember growing up and hearing about the Holy Spirit and hearing about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I kind of had these images in my mind of each of the three of the Trinity. Like God the Father was the big guy, the, the big one. God the Father was the nice, or God the Son, Jesus, was the nice guy. He's the cool one. He's the one that came down here and died on a cross for our sins and did all that stuff. But God the Holy Spirit was the weird one. That's what I thought growing up. He was the weird one. And the reason why I thought that the Holy Spirit was the weird one was because anytime anything weird happened in church, people would say, that's the Holy Spirit, right? Somebody falls down, somebody's screaming, somebody gets a little bit excited. Everybody's like, well, it's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, where's the Holy Spirit? Like, Holy Spirit's a little creepy. Holy Spirit's a little weird. Holy Spirit's like, I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting event where there's a mascot working his way through the crowd, rubbing his belly on the back of people's heads and knocking their hats off and drinking their sodas and doing fun. And it's like one of those things where it gets fun when it's over there, but when the mascot gets into your section, it's not as much fun. And that's how I felt sometimes growing up in church services where like the Holy Spirit was doing things. I'd be like, that's cool for them, but I I hope he just kind of stays in their section. I hope he doesn't make his way over here. And uh, I remember having all this sort of confusion about the Holy Spirit. I also thought this. I thought the Holy Spirit was habitually late to service. That's what I thought. Because it was like the Holy Spirit didn't really show up until the altar call, until the very end. So I pictured the Holy Spirit like just chilling out in Cafe 633, drinking a coffee the whole service. And then he hears the ambient strings and the piano player start playing. He's like, that's my cue. (laughs) Hold my coffee. And then he heads into church. So obviously I had some confusion about the Holy Spirit, but I don't think I'm the only one who has confusion about the Holy Spirit. A lot of people's understanding of the Holy Spirit has been almost solely shaped by their experiences. It's dangerous. Whether you've had good experiences, bad experiences, no experiences, experiences are not the foundation for theology. The scriptures are the foundation for theology. Experiences can confirm and affirm what scripture says, but we cannot build a doctrine of who the Holy Spirit is simply based on what we've experienced because sometimes we experience things that maybe are but maybe aren't the Holy Spirit. And so what does scripture say about the Holy Spirit? In this world where there's many misgivings and misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit, we wanna look first, we're gonna spend four weeks talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna cover a lot of stuff. We're gonna talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We're gonna talk about the gifts of the Spirit. This morning, uh, Jeannie spoke out during the service. Maybe that was new to you. That's a, that's a work that is attributed to the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk about that in a few weeks, what that looks like and, and what that can look like and, and how that should function when we come together. There's actually really helpful instructions in Scripture on what that should look like, and we're gonna talk about that. But we're going to start today looking at Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. And just to set the context for this, Jesus' time on earth is drawing to a close. He knows that in just a matter of days, he's headed to the cross. He gathers his closest followers to him, his disciples, and he begins to teach them, and he prays for them. And what's very interesting is that one of the topics that he focuses on the most towards the end of his life is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit was important enough for Jesus to talk about towards the end of his life, then he's important enough for us to learn something about this morning. So let's look at the text together, beginning in John chapter 16. It's on your handout. It's in your scriptures. It'll also be on the screens behind me. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus says this to his disciples. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Jesus was about to send back to the Father. Verse six, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. These disciples are bummed that Jesus is talking about leaving. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you if I leave. 
For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, our helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember those three words because we're going to talk about those later. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This morning from this text in John 16, there's four things that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing is this. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Twelve times in John chapter 16, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. And every single time, he uses the Greek masculine pronoun, he. Jesus never uses the pronoun it to talk about the Holy Spirit. He always uses the pronoun he. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force to wield. The Holy Spirit is not a mystery to solve. He is not a code to crack. The Holy Spirit is not an energy that you tap into. He's not a feeling that you chase after. The Holy Spirit is not a power that you're trying to get your hands on. The Holy Spirit is a person. And how do we relate to a person? By getting to know them. He is a person to know. And as a person, the Holy Spirit has an intellect, mind, or intellect, will, and emotions. He has an intellect. He thinks. He discerns. He has emotions. He feels things. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. He has a will. He makes decisions. He makes choices. He's a person. We also see in Scripture that there are personal acts attributed to him. Here's some of the things that the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. He testifies. He teaches. He convicts. He intercedes. He guides us. He reveals things to us. And in the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit is treated and responds like a person. The Holy Spirit can be tested. He can be lied to. He can be grieved, resisted, insulted, blasphemed against. The Holy Spirit is a person. The second thing we see in this text is that the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is not just your average person. The Holy Spirit is divine, which means the Holy Spirit is God. As parents, sometimes there's moments where we're trying to convince our children that things are good for them but we're not really convinced ourselves. You ever been there? Like, I think it's, it's, I know it's good for you to eat those vegetables, but like, I don't want to eat them. Like, but it's good for you. It's good if we go on a family walk instead of sitting down and watching a show, it's good. But, but I don't, you know, I don't mind relaxing too, right? And sometimes I'm, I'm trying to convince my daughters of things and they look at me and they're like, dad, I don't think you are convinced of this either. I'm not sure that you, I'm not sure that you're bought in on this. There's something Jesus says to his disciples that they must have looked at him and thought, Jesus, are you, do you even believe that? Jesus said, it's better for you if I leave you. It's to your advantage that I go. The disciples must have been thinking, what could be better than having Jesus, this miracle worker, this healer, this teacher, this wonderful leader, what could be better than having the Son of God with us? What Jesus is saying, Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. He's not being sarcastic. This is a statement of fact from the Son of God. He's saying the Holy Spirit within you is better than the Son of God next to you. And the reason being is that the Holy Spirit is not restrained by time and space. When Jesus came and walked this earth, he was embodied. He, he, he was wrapped in flesh. He could only be in one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit can be anywhere. The Holy Spirit can be with all believers from a prison in this country to a pulpit in this country. The Holy Spirit is not hindered by space or time. The Holy Spirit can be there. And as God's mission was going to advance, he knew that his people were going to scatter all over the known world. And the Holy Spirit needed to come to dwell within them. And so it's better for them that the Spirit was with them than that Jesus was with them. 
The only way that this could actually be true is if the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, is God, is divine. There's no way it was better for the disciples for the divine Son of God to leave them unless the divine Spirit of God was coming to be with them. He's God. In John chapter 14, a couple chapters earlier, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit again, and he says, I'm gonna send you another advocate. And that Greek word, another, there's actually two Greek words Jesus could have chosen from there. And one of them is another, but I'm very different from, and the other one is another, and I'm very similar to. And Jesus chose the word another, which basically means, I'm gonna send one just like me. The Holy Spirit is just like me. Just like I am God, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's some other evidence from scripture of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, we see that the Holy Spirit is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. That's an attribute of God. In the birth announcement by the angel Gabriel, we learn that the Holy Spirit has great power. He is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. We learn in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Your spirit goes everywhere. Which, by the way, let me just say this. That's why when we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, we don't have to ask the Holy Spirit to show up. We don't have to call the Holy Spirit down. We don't have to do any of that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And for the believer, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So wherever you go, there is the Holy Spirit. So what should we pray instead? Instead of saying, Holy Spirit, would you show up tonight at first Sunday when we gather to pray and sing? Or Holy Spirit, would you show up this morning in the church service? Instead, here's what we should pray. Holy Spirit, would you make us aware of what you're doing right now? Because the issue is not the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere. The issue is our awareness of his presence and what he's doing in any given moment, in any given time, in any given space. He's God. He's omnipresent. He doesn't jump in his car, drive over to Trinity, and get here for church like you did. He's everywhere. He's God. He does the work of God. He's a creator. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the earth, which means he's eternal. He's always existed. The Holy Spirit was at work in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit is involved in salvation and sanctification and sealing us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is God. And what this means, by the way, since the Holy Spirit of God is, the Holy Spirit is God, is this. Listen, we don't control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit controls us. We don't control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit controls us. He is God. Sometimes in certain preaching and teaching and certain ministry circles, it feels like people feel like they're in control of what the Holy Spirit is doing in a service. I'm not in control of what the Holy Spirit is doing in a service. You are not controlling what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's God. He cannot be manipulated by us. He cannot be coerced by us. He's God. Third, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is divine, but also the Holy Spirit is relational. He's relational. How many of you would describe yourself as relational? You're a pretty relational person. Three of you. We got a lot of work. We got a lot of work to do here. Uh, Let me ask it this way. (laughs) Uh, There's two basic types of personalities. There's a lot of variation. But there's extroverts and there's introverts, all right? I'm an extrovert. I get a lot of energy from being around people. I like get-togethers. My wife, Erin, God bless her, is an introvert. She likes to be more alone or just with family, just much smaller groups. I get energy from being around people. She gets energy from not being around people. So we're a little bit different. How many of you would say you're, you're an extrovert? You, you really get energy from being around people. Yeah, and then the rest of you are introverts. And most of you married each other, so good luck with that. But um, <laughs> here's, what I, here's one thing I've learned over the years. Extroverts and introverts look at each other in a very funny way. 
Extroverts look at introverts like they're projects, right? Like, I can fix you. Like, whatever is broken inside of you, I can fix that thing. Like, whatever terrible thing happened in your past to make you quiet and made you read books and journal, I'm gonna bring that, I'm gonna bring you out and, and we're gonna have a lot of, so, so extroverts look at introverts like they're projects and introverts look at extroverts like they're monsters, right? <laughs> like, just, just relax for a second. Like, think a thought before you talk. Like, just, right? And so you have these two things, but both people are relational in different ways. In fact, actually, I think introverts sometimes have deeper relationships even than extroverts because of the nature of who they are. But the Holy Spirit is fully relational. He's not on his own doing his own thing. He's always existed in relationship with the Father and with the Son. And in Genesis 1.26, when God decides to create humankind, he says, let's create humankind in our image, third person, possessive, our. Why? Because there's a bunch of gods like the Greeks believe? No. There's one God, but there's three persons. One essence, three distinct persons. And I recognize it's a mystery. There's no metaphor that does the trick here. I'm sorry. I don't care what metaphors you've used or heard. They do not work. They're actually more similar to heresies than they are to the actual doctrine of the Trinity. It's a mystery, it's hard to wrap our minds around, but he is God after all. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's not three different ways of looking at God. It's not, listen to this, it's not three different roles that God plays. Like I have different roles, right? I'm a son, I'm a father, uh, I'm a spouse, right? But that's not, that's not the, these are distinct persons, three distinct persons, each with unique roles and relationships. And in this text in John 16, we see Jesus talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's clear from scripture that the Holy Spirit is in relationship with the Father and Son, and each of them has a unique relationship with each other. There's four relationships represented there, right? The Father with the Son, the Father with the Spirit, the Spirit with the Son, the Spirit with the Father. And so, or three relationships. So we have these unique relationships between these three persons. Let me give you some examples. The Son, Jesus, was sent by the Father, why? To reveal and glorify the Father. Those are Jesus' own words. I was sent by the Father to reveal and glorify the Father. Jesus perfectly bore the image of the Father so that we can, he's the exact representation of the Father, so now we can see in flesh what God the Father is like in his values and in his character and in his heart. Well, why was the Holy Spirit sent? The Holy Spirit was sent by the Son and the Father, really, to do one thing primarily, to reveal and glorify who? The Son. To reveal and glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose is not to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to push all the attention to the Son, to Jesus. Now, in our thinking, we might feel like, well, then doesn't the Holy Spirit have a lesser role? Isn't he less significant? That's the wrong way to think about it. This is the plan from eternity past. This is how they're gonna accomplish their plan of redemption. That Jesus would come to reveal and glorify the Father and that after Jesus ascends back to the Father, he would send the Spirit to reveal and glorify Jesus himself. So the Holy Spirit's not about himself. Earlier this week, I took my five-year-old out for lunch. I had to pick her up from school because my wife was at a field trip with my other daughters and uh, we went out to have a little daddy-daughter date and uh, we, we may have ended up at the Chinese buffet. It was her, her choice, her choice. And uh, we're sitting there eating and, uh, and by the way, it's really hard to carry her and fill up two plates of food. I was, it was a little frustrating, but I figured it out. Um, we're sitting there having a conversation, and uh, she's kind of, you know, she's little, so it's hard to actually get a conversation going. But I said, Lilia, or Madeline, who's the funniest kid in your class? 
you know, I know a lot of the kids in her class now by name, Dante and Liam and Layla and all them. And I said, who's the funniest kid in your class? Who makes you laugh the most? And she's, she's giving me a name, but I don't recognize it. I thought it would be Dante or Liam because they're kind of the funny kids. And, but she's saying something I can't hear, plus there's noise around me. So I lean in. I'm like, no, Madeline, who's the funniest kid in your class and who makes you laugh the most? And I listen real close, and she goes, me. <laughs> me. I'm the funniest kid in my class, and I make myself last, laugh the most. I thought, man, we're, we're really me-centered people, aren't we? Like, we really, we, we really are. And one of the things that we should love about the Holy Spirit is he is not himself centered. He's not a me, he is Jesus centered. He is, he is always pushing us to see Jesus. In fact, later in this chapter, you don't have to turn to it, it won't be on the screen for you, but Jesus says this in verses 13 through 15, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Hold on, Holy Spirit, God, can't speak. I mean, remember, each of these persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're equally and fully God on their own. They do not combine to become God. They are each God. Three persons, one God. How does the Holy Spirit not have the right to speak on his own authority? Because he doesn't have the power? He's God. No. Why? Because there's a role. He plays a role. Here's the role. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. From who? From the Father and from the Son. The Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart even this morning on behalf of the Father and the Son. And his primary message to you is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the primary, don't miss this, the primary role of the Holy Spirit and all the things that the Holy Spirit does, and some of the things he does can be a little weird. We'll talk about that in future weeks. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit and everything he does is to reveal Jesus to our hearts to point us to Jesus. So let me just make this point. How do we know on Sunday mornings that the Holy Spirit's been at work? How do we know when the Holy Spirit is working in our midst when we gather together? And there's lots of metrics that people use. Sometimes people say, well, the Holy Spirit was at work because I felt something, because I cried, because I came to the altar, because somebody gave a word, because somebody, whatever. There's all sorts of things that are helpful and could be certainly the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the number one way you know that the Holy Spirit has been work, at work in a church service. Jesus has been preached. Jesus has been proclaimed. Jesus has been lifted up. And you leave with a greater sense on your heart of the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is. So you don't have to walk into a service and go, oh, they didn't, I don't know if they, the Holy Spirit was at work because A, B, and C didn't happen. The question you need to ask yourself is, was Jesus exalted? And if Jesus was exalted, then believe me, the only one who can do that effectively for you and me is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's lifting up Jesus for us to see him and respond to him. All right, so the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is relational. The last thing we learned from this text, uh, and there's a, you know, don't pack your bags up because there's a few sub points here. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Jesus said right there, I'm going to send a helper. I love that word. Other translations say comforter, counselor, advocate. Those are okay. I like helper because I think we can relate to it. All of us need help, right, at different times in life. But the only danger with the word helper is that we misunderstand what Jesus means by help. Sometimes it's help we don't want. You ever been there? Someone's trying to help you and you don't want their help? The Holy Spirit's not gonna be doing things in your life if you're resisting him and saying, I don't want that. Sometimes it's help that actually slows you down, like a kid trying to help you bake or a kid trying to help you work on something, and you, it actually takes you longer than it would have because you've got to slow yourself down to teach them and accommodate them. That's not the sort of help that the Holy Spirit does either. How does the Holy Spirit help us? 
My five-year-old that I mentioned earlier, Madeline, she has cerebral palsy, and so she has very significant physical limitations, and she can't walk without the assistance of a walker or another person. And sometimes she wants to walk, and she doesn't want to use her walker, so she'll say, Daddy, help me walk. Help me walk. And so I put my hands under her armpits, and I just kind of, you've probably seen her do this, I just kind of hold her up, and she, she walks, and I'm helping her. Now, in that case, my help is not unneeded, it is not unnecessary, it is not resisted. My help is vital. If I don't help her, she's not going to walk. Now, this is how the Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit helps us do things we could never do on our own. Listen, you couldn't love Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You couldn't love your spouse without the Holy Spirit. No one yell amen. <laughs> you couldn't not lose your temper in traffic without the Holy Spirit. You could, I mean, we can't do anything that lasts that's fruitful without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Now, how does he help us? And I, I want to end with looking at three quick things. Trust me, this is not another full sermon. I'll wrap this up quick. But three quick things that, according to this text, did you notice the three words I mentioned earlier? He convicts us about what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's talk about those three words real quick because that's why the Holy Spirit is here, to help us. First, he's helping us understand that sin is worse than we think. Sin is so much worse than we think. You and I tend to think of sin in terms of behavior, when we lose our temper, when we lie, when we lust, when we do things like that. And yes, that can be sin, but it's so much more. Now, how do we know it's more? Because Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is coming to convince us that our understanding of sin is wrong because why? Because we don't behave like Jesus? That's not what it says. What does it say? Because we don't believe in him. See, at the heart of sin is always unbelief a lack of belief in Jesus, and not just mental assent, like yes, I believe, but like a staking my life on him. And another word that we can use here instead of believe is to receive, to receive Jesus into our lives. And receiving Jesus, by the way, means receiving him as he is and not as we want him to be. Jesus didn't come to be received on our terms. He came to rule over our lives on his terms. And for some people, they think they've received Jesus into their life, but he's nothing more than a sidekick. He's nothing more than sort of a, a lucky coin that they rub that they hope will come through for them. He's a genie in the bottle. He's a, for some Christians, he's a spiritual blessing vending machine. They put in their effort, and they hope that he gives them something good. For other people, Jesus is someone who just happens to support all of their preferences and all of their thoughts. But Jesus didn't come to be those things for us. He came to rule over our wills and our affections. And this word sin here, when Jesus talks about sin, it's not just a list of the mistakes that we make, although we make plenty of mistakes. It, this is what one of the commentators say. This idea of sin here is the fundamental act of choosing another God. Choosing another God. That's where sin starts. There's a, there's a, in the New Testament, you'll see the phrase a lot, especially in Paul's writings, sinful desires. In the King James Version, it's translated lust. When you hear the phrase sinful desires, I don't know about you, but what I tend to think is, well, that means desiring after sinful things. But when you study out this word in the Greek, it's not what it means at all. What makes the desire sinful, listen, is not the object of the desire. It's not what you desire. What makes the, the desire sinful is not the object. It's the amount of the desire. It's an over-desire. It's a controlling desire, even a controlling desire for good things, which is why Pastor Tim Keller says that the main problem our heart has is not so much a desire for bad things, but it's an over-desire for good things. Here's some good things that we should want, but when we want them too much, they control us and they become our God. Health, wealth, success, 
security, significance, approval, acceptance, comfort, great spouse, well-behaved children, ministry impact, whatever it is. Those are good things, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, here's what it does. It creates an over-desire in you, and it's sin. It's a too-much desire. It's an over-desire. It actually controls you and enslaves you. Because everybody believes and receives something in their life, and whatever is most central to your belief system, that's the thing you look to for rest and for joy. And when it isn't Jesus, it's sin. And the Holy Spirit helps us know our own hearts. He doesn't just come to convict us of bad behavior. He comes to convict us of wrong belief. And we don't even know our own hearts, so we can't do that without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is here to let us know sin is worse than you think. But secondly, uh, righteousness is harder than we think. It's harder than we think. Listen, if sin isn't just bad behavior, then you can't make yourself righteous through good behavior. Let me say that again. If sin isn't just bad behavior, then you cannot make yourself right just through good behavior, doing good things, doing religious things, even the best things. Good works is not the solution. You cannot impress God with your righteousness. And the Holy Spirit is always trying to remind our hearts, all your trying, all your morality, all your spirituality, all your religiosity, all your right living, your absolute best day, according to Isaiah, it's a filthy rag before God, or Paul says it's a pile of poop, basically. I mean, this is, this is, what, we, this is what we hold in our hands, and we offer up to God, and we say, God, aren't you impressed with my righteousness? Righteousness is harder than you think. You can't give it to yourself. And here's one of the central messages of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. You cannot achieve righteousness, but because of Jesus, you can receive righteousness. Righteousness cannot be achieved, but it can be received. We cannot make ourselves righteous, and we cannot receive it without the Holy Spirit. So sin is worse than we think. Righteousness is harder than we think. And then lastly, and we'll close this. Where's the good news? Here it is. Judgment is better than we think. Judgment is better than we think. Judgment's not usually a word that brings hope to people's hearts. It's not really the source of good news usually. Judgment usually indicates a position of strength, authority, power, and control. When you walk into a courtroom, where does the judge sit? Center, elevated, why? Because it's symbolic. He or she is in a position of control, power, strength, and authority. So God has to judge the sins of the world. He's a holy God, it's in his nature. How is he gonna judge, how is he gonna destroy sin and not destroy sinners? How's he gonna deal with the sin in our lives but not simultaneously have to reject us? Where does this moment of judgment going to look like? What was God's great moment of triumph over the ruler of this world? Was it a moment of strength? Was it a, did we see a man in control? Is it a display of power and authority? And the answer is not at all. It's the cross. It's a moment of profound weakness and shame. Think about it. In weakness, Jesus Christ became the righteousness we cannot give ourselves. What do I mean? He made himself like us. He descended. He became human. He became a servant. He became man. He lived perfect in our place. So in weakness, Jesus became the righteousness we can't give ourselves, but then he went to the cross. And what happened at the cross? In weakness, Jesus became the sin that we can't take away from ourselves. So Jesus becomes the righteousness we need that we can't give to ourselves. He becomes the sin that we can't take away from ourselves. And at the cross, the judgment of God and the mercy of God collide together, and Jesus gets the judgment, and you and I, we get the mercy. We get the invitation. He gets cast out, we get brought in. He's rejected, we're, we're received. 
He's abandoned, we're adopted. He's punished and we're rewarded because we're good, because we're righteous, because we figured out how to manage our sin. No, because we placed our hope in the work of the cross. The great moment of judgment where Jesus took our place. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake. Let that verse be personal for you just for a moment. Think about this way, for my sake. Say that to yourself. For my sake, God made Jesus, who had never sinned, to become sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's the approval our hearts crave. I mean, this is what everybody's running after. And this is what everybody's chasing. In every moment of pleasure, in every moment of success, in every relationship, in every endeavor, this is what every human being is chasing after, this sense of approval, this sense of acceptance. And the only way that we get right standing before the Father is through the work of the Son. And you know who's speaking that to your heart day after day after day? It's the Spirit. The Spirit is reminding you, look at Jesus. Look at what he did for you. Look at how beautiful he is. Look at how wonderful he is. The Holy Spirit is reminding us, this is the truth you're searching for. Why are you looking somewhere else? This is the beauty that you're longing for. Why are you looking somewhere else? The Holy Spirit is guiding us into truth. He's glorifying Jesus, and he's taking what belongs to Jesus, and he's speaking it to our hearts. And we need to experience that. When we watch, uh, when my wife and I watch Food Network shows like Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, one of the things I like to pay attention to the most is where is the restaurant located? And the reason I want to know is because if it's close, I want to try it. But if it's like in Oregon or California or something, I just kind of tune out because I'm like, I'm, I'm never going to get there. I, I don't care how good that food looks. I'm never going to eat it. So it's actually almost like a smack in my face. Like if there's no chance or very little chance of me eating that food, I almost don't want to watch it. What's the point? I don't want to see Guy Fieri stuff his face over and over over, making all his weird noises. Like, I want to eat that. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to watch it. I want to experience it. I want to taste it. But then every now and then, there's something featured on the Food Network that's in New York or Pennsylvania or Philly or D.C. or Boston or somewhere that I actually might go sometime. And then I kind of perk up because then I start to write myself a note. Like, don't forget, if when you go there, check this place out. Why? Because I know that I'm going to be able to move from knowing about it, from watching it, from hearing about it, about it to experiencing it, to tasting it, to thinking it's good to knowing it's good because I've tasted it. And this is what the Holy Spirit helps us do. He moves us from knowing about God, thinking about God, hearing about God, wondering about God, singing about God, to experiencing God. As the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you're here this morning and you've tasted and seen of his goodness, you've only done that because of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without the work of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel Transformation Bible study note says this about the Holy Spirit. I'll read this and we'll pray. I might read it twice. The Holy Spirit constantly draws attention to Jesus, nestling the gospel into our hearts and applying the finished work of Jesus to our lives. Let me read it one more time. As I read it one more time, would you close your eyes and just let these words focus your heart the Holy Spirit constantly draws attention to Jesus. Can you get a sense of the humility of the Holy Spirit? We talk about the humility of Jesus a lot, but what about the humility of the Holy Spirit? He's constantly drawing attention to Jesus. 
And he's nestling, I love that verb, he is nestling the gospel into our hearts. He's helping it feel at home, find its home, settle in, do its work. And he's applying the finished work, not the halfway finished, not the almost finished, not that Jesus did his part, you do your part now. The finished work of Jesus to our lives. Holy Spirit, we love you. You're our helper. You do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and we give you praise, and we give you glory, and we give you thanks. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit showing us our lostness, showing us our need for a Savior, and then not leaving us there, but revealing Jesus to our hearts, and then regenerating our hearts, breathing new life into every area of our hearts as we trust in the Son. And then helping us grow into the image of Christ. Helping us go on the mission of Christ. And sealing us for the day of redemption. That we would not be lost, but that we would belong to God. What a good God. What a good Holy Spirit.